We're talking about the letters of Harambam, and of course we finished the first Teshuvah. We had discussed, of course, the mixed feelings of the Rambam in writing to Hachamelu now, described who Hachamelu now were, and exactly their stance on this issue. They were very supportive of Harambam, but on the other hand, they had 24, 25 questions against his Mishneh Torah, and the Rambam was attacked from all quarters, both philosophically as well as halakhically. We are interested primarily over here in the halakhic responses. They are enamored with the Rambam's philosophy, but his halakha, they're wondering exactly what are you saying to us halakhically. And it's, a, it's interesting the kinds of questions they are asking and their sources. We had covered already the first question on page Tafkof Aleph. Do you have it, Tafkof Aleph? The first question we covered, which is about Tefillin. What exactly should be the order of the parashot and the Tefillin itself? Now imagine how everybody at one point had one particular order, and the Rambam himself, and all of a sudden they find out that the order of the parashiot are different. What were the order? There's two different ways of putting tefillin. And we discussed at length, and I showed you the tefillin from Qumran, if you recall, from the ancient sect at Qumran, where they, even there, 2,000 years ago, had two different sets of tefillin. What's known from the Middle Ages as tefillin shurashi. We, of course, read shurashi, wherein we have the same order of the parashiot from the Torah itself, which would you begin with Kadesh, Vihaya, which we read in Kadesh, Yikor, and then you have Shema Yisrael, Vihaya, and Shema Yisrael. Those are the four parashiot that we're concerned about. A fill it Shorosh, fill it it's all written on one, so it's not an issue, but here it's four different compartments, and therefore, it's a question, what should be the order of the parashiot itself? So, the Rambam changed what was the accepted practice, and they challenged him on it, and we had discussed how he said, yes, you're right, when I was living in the western part of the world, in Spain, I did as well do as you're doing. When I got here, I found out that the Geonim and others had, in fact, she- did it according to the order of the Torah itself, rather than putting the two Vihayas in the middle, which is Rabinotam. In other words, Kadesh and Vihayah and Vihayah and Shema. And we had mentioned as well, Rabbi Salavitch had given a three-hour shi'ud on this topic, as to whether or not religion should be experiential, Yisrael Mitzrayim should come first, or should be intellectual and put Shema first or something, some variation of that. I don't recall the exact details of a shiur 25 years ago. But it was interesting how he took this seemingly halachic machloket and made it into a philosophical issue between how one should teach and experience religion. That's the first issue. So we discussed that. You all have that over there? Now we're up to the second issue, I think. Okay, so here's the next question, which is a Simple, straightforward, halachic issue. Here's the question that they raised. In a chotetit, perek bed halachazayin, which look at the minute, afilo matahotim besulim. Let's say you found a tetit, or your tetit, has strings or threads to it, right? And let's say it has these chotim and pisukim, they're cut off, or the shezurim, if they're intertwined, sometimes it gets uh, intertwined tetit, it's pasul. Okay. Now, what's their issue? And he says, they said to him, one second, that's against the Gemara. How did you, Rambam, write against the Gemara itself? That's the major issue involved over here. You don't pass him, you don't say, you don't push a she'ilah against the Gemara itself. So they're on target over here. If you found it to see, of course it's see, you take it to see it out, and the Rambam made the statement that if you found your Hotim Pesukim cut off, let's say they're too short, or say they're intertwined, as they sometimes get, as opposed to being discrete threads, you need eight to see eight threads, 
you have them intertwined all mesh together. Let's call it that. Intertwined. Right? So this is pasul. You can't do this. You can't have it that way. No good. So they're saying to him, one second, whatever your issue is, it's against the Gemara. How could you do something and say something against the Gemara itself? It was a very legitimate question. Right? He answers them. He says, you're absolutely 100% correct. And when I had copied from the Gemara itself, when I copied it into my text, I made a mistake in copying. In other words, originally he recalled the halakha, wrote it by heart, made a mistake. Now I found this very amazing that the Rambam had made a mistake. And, and I realized this is correct when I went back and checked my sources. And then we mended, we fixed the formulation that's correct. And should be, if you find your tzitzit, the sukim cut off, it's pasul. And if they're intertwined, it's kasher. If they're all interwoven, then it's kasher. So it's straightforward issue, straightforward story. No issue that one should be concerned about. Remember, the Rambam did not write his sources. One of the great criticisms of the Rambam is that he didn't list his sources. So, he could have made a mistake. We don't know. And if you had your sources, then it would be simple to check. They also discovered a source that perhaps he didn't have. Where's your source? What would you quote from? So, the Rambam wrote the code as a commentary. Code means very straightforward, very clear. That you could read through without having the confusion of sources or the confusion of mahlur quotes. Which means, you said, he said, you argued, he answered. That's the Gemara. That's what I want to write. He wants to write a very straightforward code. Yet, of course, on a much more subtle, nuanced fashion. In fact, the code of the Rambach is a commentary as well. It's a commentary on the Gemara. In that, if you don't know what Gemara means, look at the Rambach. There are times when he will elucidate a difficulty in the, in the Gemara. It's a commentary in the sense that it brings different sources, philosophical, psychological, historical, to the table as well. So it's really an expanded code or a very brief commentary. The issue of code and commentary, which you had read about, was one of the major issues going back to the, let's say, to the Mishnah and the Gemara. In that, a code is very clear, very straightforward. The Mishnah is a code of law. It's clear, it's straightforward, it's uncomplicated. You read it, you know what you're doing, you do it. Gemara is a commentary. Questions, answers, challenges, all over the place. There have been times especially when there was a need for a code and a time when there was a need for a commentary. In the classic case of this, the Shahana Aruch originally wrote something called the Bet Yosef, which we discussed, which is a commentary. Why did he write this massive, expansive commentary giving all the sources that the law, of the law? Mishnah, Gemara, other people, questions, answers, whatever he knew. He wrote this massive commentary. This is what he wrote before Shahana Aruch. Why did he write that? Because prior to him, the Biyakul Bala Turim was not happy with the Rambam in the 13th century. He wrote it in the 12th century. Let me talk about 12th or 12th century. Let's just say he wasn't happy with it. Why wasn't he happy with it? You have no sources. You have philosophy. You have other issues involved here. I'm, do, I'm redoing this. Even, for example, such an issue where the Rambam divided his code to 14 sections, which is a very nice classification of law. Remember, the Shankar just gives you War topic, Shabbat, and everything under the sun and Shabbat, and other things as well. Nizikin, there are six orders of that Mishnah. 
וצטורת, זמן, צבנים, מועד, זרעים, מועד, נשים, נזקים, טהרות, קודשים, he has six orders of משנה. Good, the answer is I want to expand this, make it much more specific. Fourteen. רבי יעקב אלטרין מורדן to four. So you only need four classifications. Fourteen, יד החזקה, fourteen, don't need that. Put into four. אור חיים, אבן העזת, אבן חושב משפט, and ברגיעה. אור החיים, the way of life. Prayer, blessings, whatever the way you need on a daily basis. Fine. חושב משפט, business law. אבן העזת, women's law. ברגיעה, everything else. Now, the everything else is not easy to really deal with because that's a hot shahita, meliha, food. Also has kibud avayim, kibud avayim, respect. What are these two conceptual together? Nothing. He wasn't concerned about conceptualization. Four sections, four pillars, easy. Women's law, here it is. The Ramah was too detailed, apparently, that we are called Balkan Masang. You have too many classifications. Four board classifications is better than 14 too detailed ones. So it's a whole new code. But Shahanaruk sees a code of law. There's not enough here. You need sources. You can't just study a code per se. He writes a commentary. Called Be Yosef. Expansive. Every issue is fully elaborated. He finishes writing this for the 20 years and what happens? He says, you know something? It's too expansive. It's too detailed. Who's looking at my commentary? You need a code. So what does he do? He goes ahead and writes Shahanaruk, which is only a code. It's bare bones minimum. Here's the law. Black and white. A, B, C, D. Do it. Finish. And the, and the uh, Dhamma as well went through the same experience of writing a commentary and then writing a code. This has gone on. And even after, hundred years later, the Lerush, Rabbi Yochonat, Rabbi Yochonat, says, you know something? We need a commentary on this code of Shohan Aruch. So it's a, what's the commentary? He adds Kabbalistic insights and thoughts to it. It needs some spice to it. It's just too bland. It's too straightforward. It's too too difficult just to read law, 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 law. You need something that's going to spice it up. In our time as well, you have the same exact thing. You have, for example, Hamavod Yosef is a code. It's straightforward. Law, 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 law. Period. Shoots it at you. The Makor Hayim, he wrote a much more expanded code but it also has a bit of commentary to it. You'll see that in the fine print over here, he begins every section with the sor- biblical sources, some Talmudic issues, some philosophy. That's all. Bit, and he gives you his ten laws. The fine print over here, he does all the laws, very nice. Whatever topic it's going to choose. Gives you all the Torah sources, Gemara stuff over here, and he gives you the laws itself. It's commentary slash code or expanded code equals the commentary. He does that. How many has none of that? He doesn't need a commentary. He says, I don't need to do that. Only this code, 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 code. Okay? So the Rambam's code does not give us sources. He was criticized for that. Who are you to just decide issues without telling the free sources? They say, we found a source. Maybe you didn't know about the source. Had you put a footnote and said, this is my source, and I argue with my source, okay, then I could deal with that. You have a source. The search for the Rambam's sources has been a, la- a thousand year project. Where did the Rambam get this halakha from? Interesting has been discovered that the Rambam, in certain cases, had decided to use Lord Korn to Yerushalmi. Up to that period of time, the 12th century, he wouldn't use Yerushalmi. It was too difficult to have used. No Talmud on it in certain situations on it. It was difficult. The Rambam did, in fact, use Yerushalmi to pass, to, to decide certain questions against the Bible. So that is of interest to us. People were always searching for the source of Rambam. Where did you get this from, Rambam? So here, and this is very interesting because that was 
Here, number one case, we're going to do three or four different cases. But number one case is, I made a mistake. I had the source, I quoted it by heart, I wrote it out, and then <clears throat> apparently you had received my first draft of this, and then I checked my source, and yes, Taiti. Okay, that's important to take note of. Methodologically, Ramam may have made mistakes. We may have a wrong nosa. Although, in the last thousand years, there have been constant criticisms, questions, commentaries, on the Rambam also. Where did this law from? So by now, we probably have the right story, more or less. But you have a huge number of commentaries on Mishneh Torah. Look at the page. Here's the Rambam. You have five or six right on the page right over here. We got Oz, Mahamot Hashem, Lechem Mishneh, Kesem Mishneh, Magid Mishneh. All these are just commentaries. Seeking sources, answering issues. That's the Rambam. Okay. First issue. Next issue. He says, we have a question. In your halachot edarim, you'd be, and again, we can look up in the see, but it's exactly what he says, so we don't need to look it up. Ben Yana Hevdel, what about the difference between oaths that a father can nullify for his daughter and a husband? Let's say a woman, let's say a 15, no, a younger girl, 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old girl takes an oath. I take an oath that I will not eat any fattening foods ever again. Right, well, it's an issue. So, problem. Does the father have the right to nullify that oath? So, the Torah itself, of course, gives us very clear guidelines that the father has the right to nullify certain oaths as later on the husband. Complicated issue. What rights does the husband have to nullify the other woman? I mean, sometimes it might be, I pledge to give a thousand dollars to charity. I don't have a thousand dollars to charity. It's my, it's my money. I mean, I bring money home, I don't have a thousand dollars. So to what degree and in what context, in what context can, can the husband nullify an oath of a woman? So we want to look at this issue over here. Not extensively, but just to see the round map. over here. And Chot Nidarim, chapter 12, Pasuk Halacha Aleph, right? 12, 1. Tell us, Chot any of the vows, or Shavuot, oh, thank you, or any of the vows or oaths, Ha'av Mefer B'yom Shem'or, the Father has to nullify the day that he hears it. How do you know that? He goes to Pasuk, Neymar, all of her oath or vows, he could nullify. He has his daughter and said, I'm going, I, I pledge to give the, what I'm going to do. He says, no, no, that doesn't count. He nullifies it, fine. However, the father and the husband are not the same. The father can nullify all oaths, period. The Yom Shem, the day that he hears them. However, the Baal, the father, the husband, is not allowed to nullify oaths or vows. She has her own integrity to say what she wants, except for If it has to do with self-affliction, she says, I take an oath to fast today, for whatever reason may be. He may say that's inappropriate. He can nullify that. Or that has to do with things between he and she. For example, she takes an oath never to wear makeup. Right? She'll take hall, blue, the hall, put blue on her eyes. Never to wear mascara, never to wear rouge. Or she'll take shit. I think also never to dress up beautifully. 
That's to protect him. He wants a beautiful wife. What she wants to do with anymore? If she's angry at him. She says, oh, I never will wear beautiful clothes. You won't give me money for this $1,000 dress? I promise to, I'm going to dress in rags from now on. So that affects him. Then it affects him in that context. He can nullify. Ben Ish Now, he then, the Ram goes on to a more specific detailed list. What's the conceptual difference between issues that have to do with self-affliction, Inunefesh, and things that are between he and she? It tells us. Okay, so the difference between those two categories. I know in Nefesh, he has to nullify with regard to himself, and others all should be aware of this. But issues between her and she, he and she, just between, he does himself, doesn't tell anybody about it. Rahim and Omefer, doesn't know what, you don't need a bed for that. Good. So that's the halakha, very nice, straightforward, simple. What's their problem? Look ahead. They said that you made a distinction between the oaths that a father can nullify, as we've seen the distinction, and between a husband. And that's against the sifre. Now, what is the sifre? You have to be aware of this as part of your general Jewish knowledge, that sifre is a Tanaitic commentary, not that popular, on Torah itself. In other words, the Tanaim, the authors of the Mishnah, who flourished 200 before the common era, 200 after the common era, wrote two forms of work. One, of course, is called the Mishnah, which is the code of Jewish law that is topical. Well, how do I celebrate Shabbat? Look at my Sefer Shabbat, read the Mishnayot, you got it. What berachot do I say uh, on certain food? Mishnah berachot, the very first. Look at the right chapter, berachot, no problem. But they decided that it's also wise to write a Pasuk Vasuk commentary. As well. What came first, what came second, I'm not sure. Interesting question. And who wrote what? Who organized, who edited? All those interesting academic questions. But you have a pasuk <coughs> that you're reading at Seyah Shabbat. The rabbi is giving a class or a speech. What does he do with it? He expands on a halakha that's present in that perasha. So it's not conceptually together, it's only verse-by-verse commentary. So that's valuable because now you read the parasha and you end up with a commentary on that verse. For example, two weeks ago we spoke about tefillin because the parasha spoke about tefillin. Okay. So, tefillin, can you ask about tefillin? Not ask about tefillin, etc. For that's a halachic speech based on Hamadiyah that's based on a pasuk in the, in the Torah itself. But, if you were to come back or I were to come back, let's say, one year from now, it's not conceptual. It's not in my notes. Am I going to put it under conceptual tefillin or under the parasha? So the rabbis, in the, perhaps they began with a line-by-line, verse-by-verse comment, halakha commentary. Tefillin is a halakha commentary on the parasha. In other words, parasha has the shema. What are the laws that do shema? So they did it. They deal to it this way. That makes somewhat sense. Okay, good. And then they said, you know, but what if you're not reading a parasha and you want to know about that shema? Let's say you're not reading a parasha. It's been a sheet. What, and I want to know those. What am I going to find? What do I know? I don't know how to do it. So, okay, let's conceptualize it. Put these all in one of the orders of the Mishnah itself. And you have. So, you, you do not have any Tanaitic commentary and look at Bereshit. sheet. Why not? No halacha. On Shemoja Michilta, which is, means rules or principles. Good. Very important to know about that. That she quotes it all the time, of course. In Vaikra, book called the Sifra. Aramaic means Hasefer, the book. 
that was called the book. Why the book is an interesting question, not for now. And Sifrim, which means Sifarim, plural, is the Midbar and Devarim. Allahic Tanaitic commentaries. Tanaim are the most authoritative commentators on the Torah itself. The Torah might say X. The Ramadan and the Mishnah say that really means Y. What do we follow? The X or the Y? Y. Right? So they interpret, they tell you. Ayn Tachat Ayn does not mean literally eye for an eye. They told me that. So I said, literally, eye for an eye. Cut off the woman's hand. All these kinds of concepts that we know about, so that's either going on to milk. What does that really mean? Don't eat, get benefit of milk and meat together, or cook milk and meat together. So I said, so I said, don't let's see the golden the milk. So they told me with all the trust said, whatever it said, it meant to tell you what I'm telling you it means. So never ask a question based on the Pishutosh Mikra, on a literal text, because that's not what this story is all about. Why the rabbis is, how the rabbis do that, power of the rabbis, authority of the rabbis, different questions. Simply be aware that the Mishnah is the most authoritative commentary on the Torah itself. So you have now the, what's known as Medrashi Halakha, Halakhic works on a verse-by-verse commentary. So they now are quoting from the Sifra. They had a Sifra, and you went against it. How do you do that? Now, to how is Ram going to solve this issue? You cannot stand having gone against the rabbis of the Mishnah who authored this Tanahic commentary. What's interesting over here is that they're not quoting the Mishnah on this. We could raise that as a question. It could be the case that this is not in the Mishnah. I don't know if they're going to study, I don't know going to study, comparing the Halakhim and Gashim to the Mishnah itself. Same authors, but it's a 400 year period of time. And are there differences? Are they all consistent? Those are questions that one really should study. Say, quote the Sifre. Had the Sifre, quote the Sifre. Sifre is authoritative. Great story. Okay, so what is his answer? This question, every wise man should ask this question, to ask well. And for a number of days, I sat on this issue. It's known. Now the word Hekesh means analogy or comparison or when you put two things side by side. So we didn't look up the Sifre. I have it in my own study. I have to get it. But one should look it up. And the Sifre apparently tells us that the father cannot nullify the oaths of a, his daughter Era only those same nidarim at the Baal Nefer. Whatever the Baal, the husband can, can nullify, so to the father can nullify. They're equivalent. Av Baal. No problem. Kemoshim Mifaresh, as we explained, very fine. No problem with that. Right? However, Kashir, it was difficult for me. This issue, Yamim Rabin, for many days, and we doesn't, let's see what his difficulty is. Ramadi, and I said, I can't accept this. Ronald cannot accept this analogy. Now the question is, why not? Give me two possible reasons why the Ramadi will not accept this equivalency between father and husband. Two possibilities. Wife and daughter, you mean. Right? Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, you're approaching this conceptually. You're trying to find a conceptual distinction between wife and daughter and saying the halakha should not be the same. 
right? Alternatively, what could you do? You might find a conceptual distinction between father and husband, which is almost the same as what you're saying. Two of the same objections. Conceptual conceptual issues in how you define these two. Wife and daughter are the same. Husband and father are the same. Therefore, you can't have the same halakha. That's one approach. What would be another approach? Much simpler than that. That's what you got to really work for. Okay. Now you're getting on tonight because the, the husband's also the superior in some sense. Okay, but your expression is also correctly conceptually. I would say something very different, much more simply. The Rambam might have had another source. In other words, though the Sifre says X, whatever the X may be, the Rambam might say that, you know, I didn't accept that X because there's another source. I have another place, another situation, another Gemara, another Mishnah, another Tanedic commentary. That's why I didn't decide the issue according to the Sifre. Either he could come to approach it conceptually, think I can't deal with it conceptually, as you're pointing out, both of you, or you can approach it simply source-wise. In other words, choose any halakha. Come to a Chavodah Yosef. You ask him a question. Artificial insemination of the donor sperm. Tough, difficult question. He passes the Shiloh. He's absolutely not. No AID. Artificial insemination of the donor sperm, right? So you can ask him a question. Rabbi, why? If you have the guts. We don't ordinarily have the guts yet. Why? But you might ask him, why? What's the reasoning? He may decide, I'm not telling you the reasoning. Right? So he said, well, I can't follow you if you don't tell me the reasoning. If you really have a lot of guts to say that. He said, too bad. I don't care. I'm t- I tell you the law. That's it. Bottom line. You may go to, let's say, David uh, Halavi. Or you may go to somebody else. Who will explain the reasoning. You'll challenge the reasoning. You have a great reason why the reasoning is not good. And therefore, you can say, I want to do it differently. What might be the reasoning? Well, artificial donor sperm sounds like, it is like, maybe it's like adultery. What? That's you're telling me it's adultery? Because I'm using the husband as a weak sperm count. I get an AI, summation, with a donor sperm. That's too much like adultery. His sperm, this woman, that's no good. There is no, what, how do you define adultery, Rabbi? You might shout it. Countries where two people have sex. This is not what we're talking about over here. That sperm, the sperm bank, you don't even see the guy. So you may not accept the reasoning behind the ruling. That's one approach, which of course we don't ordinarily do. We don't challenge the reasoning. Other rabbis might challenge the reasoning, but Balabayat asks a question, gets the answer, and he does it, and that's the end of the story. Or you might challenge him based on another forsaik. Say, come, one second. The Moshe Feinstein has a halakha contrary to yours. He may tell you, well, I didn't know that. Or he may tell you, I knew that and I reject his reasoning. But, well, well by the way, are you Ashkenazi Sfaradi? I'm Ashkenazi. Oh, you could follow his halakha. He might tell you that. Or he might tell you that in this particular case, Ashkenazi Sfaradi does not count. This is Marshita. But if you don't want to follow it, which I find he's a great decider of Jewish law, follow his way. Because that is part of the Ashkenazic issue. He might say to you. 
many cases that really is the case. Where you could raise a question of this seriousness, a couple's whole life depends upon the answer to this question. They could have or not have children, right? And let's say you did the research, and you found that a Kham Hadaya in, uh, I think it's in Maskil Abzi, I think it's in the book, says AID absolutely out because it's like adultery. So you are conceptually bothered by this. You do more research. You find out that Amosheh Farsi has a Teshuvah on it. And that really he hedges and hoards and doesn't really agree with it. Just don't do it, but something along those lines, let's say, right? And then you do more research. And you do, you find out that he wrote a Teshuvah. This is what he probably say in, in his uh, Yerot Moshe in 1971 or something. But you find out, because you ask around, that in 56 he actually decided this law. In 56. Oh, and you find out somebody that knew the law as it was published in 56 in one of the halakhic journals. And then something happened. What happened? So that, the, that he allowed it then, caught launch, and then the outcry of the other rabbis, this new procedure called AID, whatever it was, don't recall exactly, was condemned by the other rabbis. And Amosheh Feinstein in those days was young. What was he? He was uh, 45 years old. This young whippersnapper comes and decides this issue based on his understanding of the law. So because of the huge halakhic outcry, what does he decide to do? He says, well, I, I'm not going to change my halakha, but I'll put a fence around it. I'll hedge my bet. I'll shade it more into the better not to. Or, if you don't do it. One of the TAB situations. If you don't do it. Whereas originally it was that's clear, allowed, then hedged. You can find something similar. So, now you have room to operate. You might tell I did research. You may not know that in 1560 he absolutely had it allowed it. And then later on put a hedge on it because people had outcries against it. That's how halakha works. So, in this particular context, you could challenge that ruling of Muhammad Rajah either on conceptual grounds, which you're going to, he may not have thought of your angle, or he, he thought of your angle and just decided against it, either way, or based on other sources. If you have enough other sources, you say, look, I, Rabbi, are you comfortable with me deciding that I want to follow ten other sources opposed to yours? There have been many cases where Rabbi did in fact say that to people. I am very mahmir, he tells you. Come to me, I want to ask you a question about the Chod Avelut. He will tell you, I am very mahmir on the Chod Avelut. We had a question, for example, I know people who had, uh, were sitting, uh, were Avelim, Tok Shana of a year, right? Tok Shana the Avelim for a parent. And they were the heads of a seminar. We have 400 kids studying Torah, studying, doing Judaism and all that stuff. So, this happened often. They came to him, Rebbe, could I go to the seminar? I want to do the seminar. It's all Torah related, it's all that. So what is seminar, what it's all about? Well, a lot of singing, dancing, kids are excited, they start a session and all that stuff. Don't ask me the question. You might say, don't ask me the question. I am very mahmir on Avelut. So, so you might go to somebody else and find a head for it. He might tell you that. Or he might tell you, no. You're my student. I said, you know, he generally would never impose his will upon you. He wouldn't say absolutely no or yes. He would, you know, he would tell you that I'm mahmir on this issue, don't ask it. Or Nida also. Nida is also very mahmir. He'll tell you. I'm very mahmir on Nida. Don't ask me that question. Okay, so then you go with somebody else, for whatever reason it is. That's the way he studied the sources. He has the integrity of a Pusid saying that I do it this way for myself, this is the way I study the sources, this is the way I learn. But I want you to go to myself. Don't ask me that question. I'm mahmir. No, no, I really insist upon asking you that question. Okay, then I'll tell you. Or he may not. He may push you away. He feels that you can't deal with his conclusion. He knows his students. 
So there are two ways you might approach a posseh, either conceptually or in terms of sources. Someone says, I have difficulty with this sifreh. I'm not happy with it. I sat for days thinking about this issue. Either, we don't know yet, either because conceptually, mother, sorry, wife, daughter, is that the same? And if we don't have the same halakha regarding nullification of vows, or husband, father, not the same. There should be a distinction between those two. Perhaps that's it. Or the Ramam has another source, could be Yudhisham, whoever it may be, and tells yet, and therefore he has a problem with that sifre. So what does he tell us over here? He tells us, Many days I was upset about this particular issue. I said, Certainly, absolutely the case, Vadai says to us. This is the isolated individual opinion of Rabbi Shimon that the author of the Sifre, where he doesn't give us anybody else as an author, is Rabbi Shimon. The Ilu Hayu Dvarim Elu Halakha. And if in fact these words of Rabbi Shimon was in fact a Halakha, La Hava Shatid Gemara Mineh. The Gemara would not have stopped from talking about it. Right? Minahu. Okay, good. Shalit and Salam Fish. You'll never find that kind of analogy of saying father and husband are exactly the same. There's two different sources of authority. You can't tell me a father is the same as a husband. It's absurd, the Ramsay. So you suppose it's not from another source, but conceptually. You will never find in any of the two Talmudim, the Shalmi, the Babli, and out of the Tosefta. Tosefta is a third source of Tanaitic halachic opinion. Tosefta. That which was not included often enough in the Mishnah itself was put in something called the Tosefta of Oshaya. Okay, so just, you know, we don't find that kind of analogy between a father and a husband. It's not the same. Get them to the same. So therefore, he says, I cannot accept. Though the Sufrit says it, I cannot accept it. And therefore, I'm going to make distinctions in my halakhic code between a father and a husband. I'm not going to conclude they're the same. And therefore, whatever, whatever one can nullify, the other can nullify. I'm going to make this distinction between these two categories of people. Father, husband, not the same. The who and his heir leave. That's just to me. That heir gets to then because of God. God says from a mistake. Maybe I'm mistaken. But it's so, how God says it. But I'm not going to accept, he says to us, this rough analogy between father and husband. So now we have two interesting points. The first point is, they were right. He made a mistake. Use the word ta'iti. Sorry, I made a mistake. When I copied it out, there was a copyist mistake. Whereas it said, it should say, you found your third seat cut off, they're hasul, if they're twisted, they're kasher. Just with the word, the word kasher came out. So it's right. You found your third seat, they were cut off or they were twisted, kasul. One word. So they challenged them. Great system. There's a very good, almost self-check system in Jewish law that you have so many people studying it that somebody's going to raise that question. It's collective knowledge. Somebody knew the Gemara, you didn't know the Gemara. Collective knowledge. So you therefore can check. So they raise the question. Yes, you're right. I copied it wrong. Ta'iti. In the first case of Tefillin, says, no, no, sorry. You guys are wrong. 
Yes, I did think like you when I was living in Spain, put you through in this particular way. I came over here, found new sources of information, and I will, now I will, I changed my discipline. Everybody in the eastern part of the world changed. We don't have your way, we have our way. Rashi, there'll be no time. Same question exists till this very day. We put on Rashi, but people put extra to do there'll be no time as well. So, 2,000 year old Mahloket that you had in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Interesting story. The third issue is, no, you have a source against me, but that source is a Da'at Shaheed, an original opinion. Whatever reason that Bishamon had for putting the father and the husband on the same conceptual plane, I disagree with it. I think that the Gemara is going to put them on the same conceptual plane, whoever talks about this particular issue. Therefore, there's a decision that has to be made between father and husband. So, I stand on my grounds. Agreed? Good. Last issue. They raise another question. Listed in the prohibited sexual relationships. Sheen lokin abiat hayde lavin deliki dushin lefanea. Shulich ora kinek benigul le gamaraki to vote lama here. What's the issue? Here we're talking about a very purely halakh issue. That if a person had inappropriate sexual relationships, now he's hayab karet or whatever, but rather he's hayab lavin. So say, hayab lavin, look up in a minute. Let's say. <coughs> You just did this act of inappropriate behavior without doing kiddushin, without marrying the person, right? This is Hayab Lavin. They, 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 they corporally punish you. You get my caught. 39 lashes, right? So Raman decided, of course, it would be asked, that unless the person had in fact done kiddushin beforehand, and then he had that sexual relationship, you don't give them malkot. If you said sex without without kiddushin, you don't give malkot. Only give the person malkot if he did kiddushin. You do not lash a person on an inappropriate sexual relationship that is hayav lavin. I mean, some of, if you have some in some inappropriate sexual relationships, you hayav sekila. Adultery, you hayav sekila. Something hayav karet, which nobody knows about it, whatever the case may be. But this is not sekila. This is only something which we should find an example of it. We'll look at it in a minute. So, in that particular situation where it's Hayav Malkot, we don't do it unless you did Kiddushin beforehand. And that's against the Gemara Kitubot. That's Abed Ham. Let's look up the Ramams in his court, Yisurah Bi'ah, which is in Book 1. Let's see what he says to us over here. Well, not yet. You didn't mention make that point. Keep in mind, interestingly enough, just parenthetically speaking, in terms of the issue of classification of law, the Ramam put together in the Book of Holiness, and this is an interesting issue, three categories. One is called Shehita, one is called Ma'achot Asurot, forbidden foods. First is, of course, Shehita, related to forbidden foods. Two is forbidden foods, whatever eating fits that, all good. And three is Hechot Yisurebi'ah, forbidden sexual relations. So you can raise the question, and then you have, what's the conceptual link between these three categories? Food, Shehita, that's how and Isurebi'ah. Why would you put those three in a, under a classification called Kedusha? Right? That's an interesting question that one can raise. Answer, to show you how careful the Rabbah was in classifying his law into 14 different categories, is that if you look at the Parashat, for example, Kedushim to you, it all comes right. The word Kedushim to you applies to sexual relationships which precedes it, and at the end of Parashat Kiddushim, again we have 
Machalot Asurot. There you're talking about forbidden foods. And what's the point over there? Pasha and Kedushim. Holiness. In other words, we achieve holiness in discipline, restrictions against inappropriate sexual relationships, as well as in the food that we eat. The Ram says, no, this work in the shop has to have that same kind of discipline. Mini'ah, preventing yourself from engaging sexually inappropriately and eating inappropriate food. What ties them together? Torah does the work in the shim to you. First glance, what are you putting all this together? But when you study the verses, you see, Kiddushim to you applies to sex and applies to food. He put them together in that conceptual unity. So that binds these all together. Now, in our case over here, in Chorosir Bri'ah, all the forbidden sexual relationships, we have chapter 15, Tetras, Halakha Bet, Halakha 2, let's see what he says over here. Good. Here's the issue. He begins this chapter, now this is way into the issues already. There's a total of, uh, I mean it's 20 of these. There's a total of 22 chapters of Chorosir Forbidden sexual relationships. Right? Now, one of the forbidden ones, of course, is an incestuous relationship. The book of Baikra, Parashat, Emod, Vidan Yokifur, gives a list of all of those forbidden sexual relationships. Ish, man, daughter, wife, sister, all the list of forbidden sexual relationships. And if, in fact, one had engaged in one of these sexual relationships, which is inappropriate, the resulting progeny is Mamzer. Mamzer is not a child out of wedlock. People are not married, they have a child. Actually, what do we say that? Fine. Why is it fine? Because the act of sex, communically, let's say, is an act of marriage. Your intensity, your concern, that binds you together. We call it common law marriage. Living with a person, have a child, it may be called out of wedlock in American law, but not Jewish law. That means you're mad, you got married, you have five children, you should, rabbinically, you should. Okay, of course you should. But the child's not a Mamzer. Mamzer is a very serious classification of child. Surah tells you, Book of Devarim, Lo Hashem, cannot marry a Jewish woman. He's stuck for life. One of the enduring questions, and one should study, how do rabbis deal with that? What do you do in that situation? What's another example of that? Woman gets married, gets divorced, doesn't get a gift, gets married again, has a child, mom's there. There's probably close to 100,000 mamzerim in America today. The kid may meet somebody, he goes, he goes to college, right? He goes to college. Very nice. They go to a nice, uh, nice school. Meet somebody in the college campus, right? Jewish guy, name is Goldberg, Goldstein, Cohen, right? Could be the kid is a mamzer. What? How could that be? I could just say that. Because the conservative and reform movements Never did not believe in a gift. So therefore, many people were married, had gotten divorced, remarried, and therefore, that child is a mom's death. Scary. Very scary. And it's passed down. Yes. Mom's death continues. Astounding. I had a situation where I had was in my living room. And that happened. I had a class go back 10 or 15 years ago, 10 years ago, in my house, to Ashkenazim, Sadim, all kinds of people from, like a federation class. So later's telling me, I hate this particular former rabbi, I think his name was Goldstein, Gold, whatever his name was. Hey, why do you hate him? What's this, I don't know what you hate him. Why do you hate him? 
I was walking, you know, once past the restaurant. He was eating lobster. She's telling the story. She's telling the story. Eating lobster. And uh, I spoke things to him. I'm happy in my marriage, whatever it was. Okay. So he said, I'm telling him getting divorced. So okay, get divorced. And details are fuzzy. I don't remember who it was. But something to the effect where he says, you don't need a guest. I got remarried. So I'm remarried. Had a child, a son. And then I find out later that by Jewish law, he's a mom's there. Right? Scary. What do you do then? This kid cannot marry a Jewish woman. <laughs> and, and in a very interesting book by Rabbi Ruben Bolkan, who came to spoke in our show about 15 years ago, 12 years ago, he wrote a book called The Coming Cataclysm. Coming Cataclysm is a great book to read. He wrote about 85, 86. And by the year 2000, between, given the trends of conservative reform divorce and the remarriage rate, all statistics, and the remarriage rate, how many children are born from that remarriage, usually two, whatever it may be. In all those rates, you have about 100,000 mamzerim, plus, including in that as well, I remember correctly, another 100 or 200,000 people whose name is Goldstein who's not really Jewish. Why not Jewish? Because their conversions are not conversions by our standards. Right? Conservative rabbi, reform rabbi, convert you, there's no mix there, then you're not really Jewish. So, the model he sets up is, your kid could go to a, uh, a nice school, goes to a rally at that school in pro-Israel, meets a person named Goldstein at a pro-Israel rally, and you fall in love with this guy, and he's not Jewish, or he's a mom's aunt, one or the other, or she, whatever the case may be. Very serious issue. So, there are hundreds of thousands, or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people that they think they're Jewish, and they're not really Jewish. Had the case, young girl, 32, 33 years old, that's very happy. Guy South America, I told you the story, and once you get mad, oh, getting mad, fine. Oh, what happened? Your mother converted. Where? Brazil, Colombia, one of these places. Could you send me the papers? The papers, I find out that it's a conservative, I called the rabbi in Colombia, wherever it was, it's a conservative conversion. Tell the parents, sorry, you can't, your daughter cannot marry this guy. She's conservative, he's definitely not Jewish. What? The girl's 32 or, or 31 years old, and she finally found somebody's getting married, you tell me she can't marry him? Well, all this just really convert again. You really think he's Jewish, knows he's Jewish, says, I'm Jewish. Send it from a look scene in the city. No. The, the kid refused. Why is he refusing? So I'm Jewish. Don't tell me I'm not Jewish. I am Jewish. I'm not going through any conversion process. It takes two days. Review all the Jewish law, which you know already anyway, and go to McVeigh and you're fine. No. Broke up. Tell the story. Now that's not only true in South America. That's true in America. Across the board. Across the board. Unless you know. Parents, when I marry somebody, we give them a form that's two pages long. Questions. Was your mother ever married before? Are you adopted? Any of your parents adopted? What if the mother was adopted? How many years ago? 50 years ago. Now what happens? Now, the children may or may not have been Jewish. She has a guy named Cohen or Goldstein, whatever the case may be. The mother was not really, may have not been converted, she was adopted, or may have been converted and not uh, McVeigh, still not converted, therefore, and therefore children is not, are not Jewish. Does it not happen? Happens. Syrian girl came to me, and I told this story as well, about seven or eight years ago, parents upset, she's going with a non-Jewish guy, terrible story, got the kids, then have them to the McVeigh. Why not? Why not? Because 20 years ago, either their rabbi didn't tell them, or the rabbi told them and they didn't remember, because they, they, they adopted right away, and you usually wait six months before you give them the McVeigh, because the kids should not gag. Okay, so you wait six months. Which would I do? You wait six months. They, they didn't wait, they didn't do it ever. So that, that means this child is now a non-Jew. She's a non-Jew. 100% bona fide non-Jew. And she wants to marry a non-Jew. That's what happened. She married a non-Jew. She's non-Jew. He's non-Jew. They're happy. 
Parents are not too happy, but they're happy. So this does happen in the certain committee, which is very knowledgeable. Maybe 25 years ago it was not knowledgeable. But, and I could see how it could happen. A couple of adopts a baby, you tell them. Make sure you dip the baby in the bed, call me out, let me know. They don't do it. You have 8,000 things you're doing. And it's not a couple of from the shul. They come by once, you know, every six months or six, whatever. We look up the shul regularly. They're really connected. So you don't remember, they don't remember. Disaster. So these are questions of serious nature. Now, you know, you try to find out if somebody's a mom's dad. If you can, you really can. If they're Jewish, it's a little easier. People throw out the form. Conversions, adoptions, first marriages, all that. As a situation where in two weeks there was a wedding, Eskenazim in our shul, and she turned out she's adopted. Oh, adopted. Wow, okay. Did you, do, did you go through conversion? I don't know. Ask your mother. Can't, why? She's 88 and dementia. Father passed away. Where did he adopt you from? Florida. How many years ago? 30. She's 31. 30 years ago. 30, 30, 31 years ago. Who was there in Florida, Jewishly, 30, 31 years ago? And he saw the question. The very wedding was in 10 days. He called the Rashi Shiva. I called the, my, my, my teachers at, at this university. What do I do now? Not the one. She might be not Jewish. She can't convert in, you know, in, this, in, 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 in six days. And I don't want to tell her to do that in six days. It'd be a joke. It'd be a sketch. It'd be nothing. So we find out that she went for two or three years to Elizabeth Yeshiva. We called the principal. 30 years ago we're going, right? 25 years ago. Oh, he's incapacitated. Oh, he's Okay. We call up his son in Israel. He doesn't remember the child at all. She happens to remember her first grade teacher. We called the first grade teacher. This is 25 years later. Yes, I remember that child. Do you remember whether she was converted? Yes, she was converted. Oh, so you knew she's converted. Principal probably knew she's probably, probably knew she's converted, and the principal was a firm rabbi. He would probably he would make sure that she was converted properly. So therefore, we, we decide this issue halakhically that they could get married based on the probability. Could you imagine that? Based on that, problem. she may really be not. But we assume that that Rabbi Tais would not have let her into the school unless she was converted properly. We assume. We don't know. There must be tons of these kinds of issues that come up in the Ashkenazic world, especially where who the heck knows what happened 50 years ago, 30 years ago. Difficult issues. For Wild West, where'd you find a McVeigh to convert somebody if you convert? Who did? When they do? Going back years. For 70 years in Russia, there were no McVeigh. Who knows what went on? You know, you know all these types of these types of issues. No conversion also probably. Who knows? So now we come back to over here. So Torah gives us very clear. Torah gives us very clear, very clear guidelines. Certain marriages or certain people you cannot have intimacy with, right? Certain chayavsekilah, adultery, results in mamzerut. Kid becomes a mamzerut, it's adulterous or incestuous relationship. Right? Now that word like adulterous or incestuous. Right? We know what that means. So now, Rambam chapter 15 talks about the mamzerut situation. Prior to this, he talked about other issues. Now it's chapter 15 already, so now he's talking about other situations. Ezehu mamzer amubasurah. What is that? You don't have it over here. What is that mamzer that you have in the Torah itself? Incestuous. From those abominations that the Torah in Parashat Aharemot. That's the name of Aharemot talks about. We read it on Erev Yom Kippur. Whole list of Abominations, including adultery, 
all of those incestuous relationships, all that's called arayot, that results in the mamzer. Chutz minhanida, meaning that if a person has relations with a nida, the kid is not a mamzer. Right? Good. Shaben mimena pagum ve'eno mamzer. He's viewed as having a flaw, but not certainly not viewed as a mamzer. Woman does not go to mikveh. She's nida. So then, she has a child. He's called pagum, flawed, but not a mamzer. Right? And then what? You may right ask the question. What are the implications of a ben pagum? We'll go to it right now. I don't know if there are any. <coughs> the Gemara has a, a few issues about that issue, but I don't know if I'm closer. In any case, so the person is certainly not a mamzer, he comes from Nida, but he's, he's pagum, not a mamzer. But anybody else of these arayot, of these lists of inappropriate sexual relationships, ben the honest. What does honest mean? Wait. Right? Wait. Ben the son. Intentionally, on purpose, with will, without will, Havalad Mamzer. Right? For the child's male or female. You're a male Mamzer or female Mamzer. Asurim Le'olam. They're forbidden forever. Shneemad, Gamber Asik Lomad Olam. The tenth generation cannot come to Jewish people. Regarding Egyptians or other people, we say, Go Shilishi. It's coming to the Jewish people. To marry us. After conversions. Okay, good. Mamzer, never. Now again, parenthetically, it'd really be an interesting halakhic challenge to see how rabbis <coughs> dealt with mamzerim. You say, too bad. End story. Or do you attempt to find a way of bringing this person in? Somehow. And if one was to study the Shilta Shavuot, the literature, for the last thousand years, where rabbis had these cases, you find creative, ingenious ways of trying to kosher the mom's death. Because it's fundamentally not fair to the child. He didn't do anything wrong. Why is he prevented from marrying a Jewish person? Some rabbis might say, too bad, your mom's dead. It happens. We know of a case that the Marashah brings down where he talks about how you could, you know, you assume that the person involved, the woman becomes pregnant. Right? She says it was by my next door neighbor. Not by my husband. So you can't testify because we have talked first of all, and Adam Mesimas Murasha, self incrimination. We don't believe you. And you don't know better. What do you know? Really, your husband was really your husband. So we deny what you No, 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 it was really the guy next door. No, no, you don't know better. You can't testify. And the guy next door moved away already. So we'll assume it's her husband. Although, sneaking looking, we know, we think, we assume that it really was the next door guy. But we don't say that. We allow it to go through. Because Jewish law has to work with these people. We don't want this, we don't want a mambet, marben, mamzerim. We don't have a lot of mamzerim in town. So therefore we assume that it was the guy. The husband came home. My husband was away that night. Where was he? He was in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. He probably came in for the night. He flew in. No, 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 no. You understand? That night there were no flights. There was a tornado. No flights. He probably came in with another means. What other means? Probably a flying carpet or something. He flew in, came in, did his thing, left again. Didn't even know about it. Rabbi, what's wrong with you? What have you been smoking? Rabbi, what have you been uh, drinking? Rabbis would go to every end to do this. You know, in, in a, and there are many cases like that that we won't go into right now where rabbis will bend over backwards. Even denying integrity because you don't want to label this person a mom's dad. Okay? And again, <clears throat> I've been meaning to 
use the body line to Shavuot project to find Shavuot that deals with Mamzerut and try to see what are the parameters. We know the Torah's law, we know the Rambam, we know the Alcha, very clear. Hi, down there. We figured to lose some weight, that's why we did this in the kitchen. Now, look at the food, not eat it, then you got your shine. That was you. Here we go. That's the idea. Yes, yes, yes. We save money. What, came, what went off? What went off? Oh, the sun. Oh. So, it'd be wonderful to study what the parameters. Now, the other side of that coin, I haven't done it. i got to go to Bali Lan's Shavuot project, and I have it. And you have thousands of Shavuot that are in this data bank, right? I'm willing to bet that you have hundreds, but I didn't do it yet, of Shavuot deal with Mamzerut. Although, perhaps not. Why not? Because if you're a rabbi, and you backdoor this, you're not going to publicize it. You're going to write about it. For that person's sake, as well as for... Uh, you don't have the rabbi saying, how could you say this? How could you do this? So the rabbi may not have written about it. I'm sure you have a few, maybe tens, maybe hundreds. I have to do the research. And it's <clears throat> worth studying because it's really a very striking moral question. It's a very striking halakhic question. What do you do with the mamzer? So the rabbi tells us first to find the mamzer. We know what a mamzer is. Now halakhabit is our concern over here. Chabit. Now here's our example. Let's say a mamzer married an Israelite woman. He's not allowed to. Right? Or Israelite has a mamzer. Or a Jewish guy marries a mamzer, a female mamzer. Right? Kevan Shibalu Ahar Kedushin Lokin. Because they had sexual relations after Kedushin, after Kedushin, right? After they were officially married, it says, Behold, you are sanctified unto me. With this coin, so now that they feel they're married, now Rabbi would have to say Rabbi didn't know. And all of a sudden comes out some light afterwards. Right? Looking, they are lashed. It's a he sanctified her. He married, he betrothed her. Betrothed her. The low ba'al, he didn't have relations. In Oloke, doesn't have, doesn't, uh, is not physically, corporally punished. Ba'al. Now, if he's the opposite, he had relations with her. The Lokin, she didn't have any Kiddushin, right? She didn't know about it. And then Lokin does not become corporally punished. We don't punish him this way. So, of course, no longer, this is all the time that I'm attached, we don't do it any longer. That, that you know, right? In no Lokin. Why not? Mishum, because Ramzerot, she'en lecha bechol, she'en lecha bechol ha'bilarin, mishlokea be'ilat, lo Kiddushin, ila kohen gadol. says, because in Ramzerot, because you don't have in all of the prohibited sexual relations which are which are law, do not do it. Law ta'aseh, do not do it. So if anybody in that whole list who is corporally punished on the ilab In other words, Mamzun is part of a whole list of pro- inappropriate, prohibited sexual relationships, right? Inappropriate, prohibited sexual relationships wherein there was no Kiddushin, and though there was Be'ilah, and none of them do we give Malchot. So, Mal- so Mamzer is in that same list, where there was inappropriate sex, no Kiddushin, no Malchot, so too Mamzerut, no Malchot. It is one of this list. It's Hayav, it's Lota'aseh, don't do it. It's a love, Lota'aseh, but if you did it without Kiddushin, you're not lashed for it. 
Okay, that's what he says. Okay. One exception. Kohen Gadol Balmana. A Kohen Gadol is not allowed to marry a widow. The lesser Kohanim is allowed to marry a widow, but not a divorcee. Right? But he can, but he cannot, the Kohen Gadol can marry a widow. If he did marry a widow, that, okay, so he says, I'll tell you, he says, I'll tell you this later on, but now he, he, that would be the exception to the rule, which is that even if he had no Kiddushin and did Be'ilah, he's Lokeh. That's the only example of that. Right? So this is the case. An interesting last point over here. Hamahazir Kiddushatoh. Mishinis et havalad kasher. Interesting case that we won't go to right now because it's a little more complicated, but it's interesting. And it's not called Ezah. Okay, so what's this point over here? Last point. So they said to him, Ramba, you said not to corporally punish somebody. If a person had inappropriate sexual relationships without Kiddushin, that's against the Gemara. That's the Rambam's issue. He says, so he said, so what does he answer them? So he answers them in line 10, Shuva, the answer is, he starts out by saying, this is an appropriate question. This question, this challenge to me, is certainly appropriate to think about a lot. And great rabbis, as you, they are going to think about and challenge me on this question. At the time when I had written my great work, my great compilation of Jewish law, I thought about this issue for a number of days. And the original first draft that I wrote about it, which I quoted by heart, and I didn't copy it straight from the Gemara itself, I wrote it like this halacha is like according to Rabbi Yitzchak. Right? What if I'm lying in the bottom? What he's telling us over here, that the first draft of this halacha, the Rambam wrote by memory, without looking into all the books, and only on the second draft, he went back to the books over here, 